Welcome to episode three of this podcast series, um, where we will be discussing different topics ranging from philosophy to political science to economics and whatnot. Um, So the first two episodes, we did the uh, review of Egalitarian Envy by Gonzalo Fernandez de la Mora, and so that was good. And now I want to get into um, a little bit of a topic that is going to be sprinkled in throughout this whole podcast series, and that is the role of the intellectuals and the anti-intellectuals. Now, typically when you're starting a topic, you want to talk about you know, who or what the thing is, characteristics about it, um, weaknesses, strengths, stuff like that. But I think it would be best if we just kind of started with talking about who... Th- not necessarily like a little bit of who they are, but what they do, and kind of working backwards into the characteristics of them. And of course, obviously, you'll pick up on characteristics and strengths and weaknesses during this conversation and during much of these conversations. But I don't want to start out with the typical like, well, this is who they are, and this is who you know why they do what they do. Let's just jump right into it, you know. Um, and I've ri- I've written a whole book on you know introduction to the uh, to the intellectual. So I can put that in the show notes. There's a link to it, link it to Amazon, um, and we will discuss it. But like I said, I just want to jump into kind of the role of these people. Like, just let's just jump right into like the meat of this thing. And so, um, so I'm going to be discussing a little bit of who these people are, um, who the anti-intellectuals are. But the way that it's going to tie into this is that we'll first begin by talking about the state itself, like the nature of the state. And then um, kind of like what what the state is. And then we'll talk about what keeps the state afloat, what keeps the machine going. And obviously, that is the um, intellectuals. And then we'll kind of wrap up with the arguments against the state and like just breaking down arguments for the state and then why those arguments are wrong. Um, and then that's how we'll wrap up. So this is going to be a good one. Um, this is actually very interesting topic to me so we can just jump right into it so the um, you know there's a great great quote that says the state is the great fictitious entity by which everyone seeks to live at the expense of everyone else and that's the Bastiat quote and so let's begin with the definition of the state so what must an agent be able to do to qualify as a state right so like what are the characteristics of the state itself and for those that are just very new to this, I just I have to say this: when we say state, we're not talking about like Idaho or Wyoming or like Florida. We're talking about the entity of like government, like the nation, the government itself. Like that's the state. It's like the state apparatus. So, <clears throat> so don't think of it as like state, like you were taught in school. So, um, so what must an agent be able to do to qualify as a state? So a couple things, a few things. Um, so the agent, um, you know, they must be able to insists that every conflict among the people of that territory, whatever it may be, wherever those borders lie, have to be brought to um, to the state for like the decision making, um, for the final review. So whatever the issues that come up, they have to be deliberated by the state. So that's what would qualify. That's one of the qualifications of what a state is. So the state agent, so the state, must um, make sure that all the conflicts are adjudicated by the state or by agents of the state. So, um, you know, so like your own people, basically, like you are the arbiter of everything. You're, I mean, 
like you're you're in charge of everything. So you know the um the it's implied in the power to exclude others from acting as the ultimate judge. Um, so like no no one else is there. It's just you. And so um, one of the other characteristics is that the agent has to be able to tax and to unilaterally determine um, basically the price that you're going to pay for the services that they are charging you. So like the price of like the justice system, for example. So the state, if you go and you have a conflict with the state, this is, and so what we're doing right now is basically I'm showing you how absurd this is. So let's say you have a case against the state. It's like John Doe versus um, the federal government, you know, the United States of America. That's the case name. So John Doe goes, John Doe has to pay fees to file a lawsuit, to do all this stuff, to go to the court and everything. And those fees are determined by the person or entity that you are suing or that you have a, a thing against, you know. So you're basically charging me for services that you're forcing me to use. So that's, that's what a unilateral contract is. It's not a bilateral contract. And in some cases, to be honest with you, if you look at like public defenders, let's say you're suing the state and you don't have enough money, the state will give you one of its agents to defend you against the state. I mean, you, you want to talk about conflict of interest. I mean, you can imagine how good of a job that, you know, public defender is going to do. You're suing the state and the person defending you is the state. So you're not going to win. But more importantly, it's this power to tax. So like, yeah, so they are charging you for a service that they're enforcing onto you and they're forcing you to use the system and they're setting the price for what you're going to pay for it. So if you're poor and you can't sue the state, that's on you because the state sets the prices. So right away, you should see how absurd that is. Um, so you can see why the power, the, the thirst for the power to control the state is high, you know? And so the question then becomes like, um, like how, how people get away with this. How do people get away with controlling people like this? And what happens is, um, you know, like suppose you and a friend happen to be in control of the state. So what would you do to maintain your position? Um, so you would probably tax people to hire some authorities or whatever, you know, some, some muscle to protect you and to make sure that there's peace among the people that you're trying to tax. Um, and so you, you'll need these people, this authority to protect you in case the people start to wake up and like revolt against you, you know. So that's what you would do. That's the first thing you do if you're a state. And that's exactly what we have now. So you have these politicians and leaders at the top. And then you have, you know, we've all seen that pyramid, right? Where it's like the people on the top and the workers on the bottom, like lifting up the pyramid. Um, it's probably like some socialist propaganda. But if you take out, take out the economics of it, it's the politically, it's correct. You have people at the top and then always like in the middle layer, there's like cops, there's, um, there's the enforcers, you know? So, like, the people at the top are really useless without these enforcers in the middle. But and the enforcers usually don't even understand their role or don't even realize the power that they have. Um, you know, that's just the situation there. But that's so that's what would happen if you were in control of the state, and that's exactly what the state does. So always just put yourself in the position of the state and ask yourself, what would I do if I was trying to maintain power? And that's typically exactly what the state is doing to you at that moment that you're thinking it. So, um, what you have to do then to continue on is that the majority of the population has to be brought to voluntarily, and I'm quoting that, you know, quote unquote, voluntarily accept your rule. They have to, at least, they think that they're volunteering to accept your rule. Like you're, like they work for you, right? That's what they tell us. The government tells you like, oh, we work for the people. 
of the people, by the people, for the people, all that stuff. So that idea that government is working for you, and not only that, it's that you chose them. Like you, you have the power. You know, they they like to make you think that you're in control, even though you're funding everything about their life and that they can put you in jail at any time. But yes, sure, you're voluntarily accepting the power. It's like the president or all these like, you know, government officials telling Joe Schmo sitting on his couch that, yeah, Joe Schmo, like you have the power. We work for you. And Joe Schmo's like, yeah, that damn right you do. You know, that's basically what, what the case is. It's like they want these people to think that, you know, they're in charge, but they're not. Um, and so what you to continue, it's like the the people have to believe in the legitimacy of the institutions, um, even if uh, the policy is like wrong, you know? So like even if the 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 government does something bad to you, they have to perceive it as an accident. Um, that you know, if a particular policy may be wrong, that a mistake is an accident that one has to tolerate um, in view of some greater good provided by the state. So if the state does something bad to you, it's like, hey, it's okay. It's because the state. I need the state for this because they provide these services or whatever. And not only that, the thing that they did wrong to me was an accident. Maybe I elected the wrong person. Maybe the wrong government is in power. Maybe it's the wrong policy. It's not the state's fault. It's like some other thing's fault, you know? And that's the thing about the state is that a lot of people think it's like super centralized. It's actually very decentralized. You know, in a dictatorship, you kind of know who... I mean, there's pros and cons to this. But in a dictatorship, you know exactly who the head is. In our system, I mean, yeah, you have a president, but he's not the head, you know? You have senators and you have congressmen and then you have agents of the state that work across the country, the intelligence community. You don't even know who half these people are. Like, this, the state is so decentralized, yet it requires, um, it requires centralization in everything except itself. And there's other examples of this as we'll continue, which is funny. Um, you know, they, they want to destroy hierarchy in culture and in your family and everything. They don't like hierarchy, but they themselves are like the most hierarchical uh, entity that like exists. And I think I've said that before. Um, and so, yeah, like, so you have to voluntarily accept the rule of the state and then you have to believe that the legitimacy of the institutions uh, of the state exist. Even if the policies that they have are wrong, you still believe in them. So there's two criteria um, for the state. So then um, how does one persuade the majority of the population to believe in the state? You know, that becomes the question. And the answer then here's where, you know, the intellectual fits in. So the help of the intellectuals. Now, again, I don't want to this is this topic of the intellectual, if really getting into them, I could probably do five episodes on this, but I, I'm going to try not to get into it. But um, And you'll see some instances of their characteristics, but just know that I'm not giving you the full picture of the intellectual here. You'll, you'll get a general idea, but it's not the full thing. But yes, the intellectuals are the people that um, keep the state apparatus afloat. Um, so how do the intellectuals, um, how do you get them to work for you? Basically, if you're the state, how do you get the intellectuals to work for you? Well, the answer is simple, is that the market, if you leave the market, um, the free market to operate, which you should, the demand for the services that the intellectuals provide aren't in high demand. No one's looking for like, you know, a philosophical analysis of something. No one's, people are looking for like someone to build their house, someone to, uh, you know, create something for them, to help them farm, to help them physically do things. Everything that the intellectual does is not needed in society. It's, it's really not needed. And I'm saying this as someone that is part of this group um, 
like we, what I'm good at and what other people are in this group are good at. Um, there's two groups to this, and I'll explain the difference. But generally, we're good at like writing, we're good at speaking, we're good at analyzing, we're good at talking. Um, I mean, that's literally what I'm doing right now. But there's no tangible, that's, that's the difference. There's no like tangible value that I can provide or these intellectuals can provide to society. Like I'm not building a house for anyone. I don't really know how. I'm not building, I can barely like assemble a, a treadmill with instructions, you know. And, and the thing is, that's the quality of these intellectuals, this intellectual class, which is the intelligentsia, which we'll get into way more later. Um, so to backtrack, so the state, in order to get these intellectuals to, um, in order to get the people to believe in the state, you need the intellectuals. And in order to get the intellectuals on your side, you create a system in the market where like you create demand, you create demand for what they're good at. And so then it creates this, dynamic where they need you because without you, without the state, they won't have like employment really. They won't have access to employment. They, they need these institutions that the government keeps creating and expanding on because that means more jobs for them and it means food on the table literally, you know? So the intellectuals need the state and then the state uses the intellectual because the intellectuals help maintain the state's power. So it's not... So the thing is you can't just employ... Some of the intellectuals, you have to employ all the intellectuals because even the ones who work in areas far removed from those that are that you're primarily concerned with, so like philosophy, social sciences, humanities, um, even intellectuals working in math or natural sciences can, obviously they can think for themselves. So again, you'll see these multiple divisions within the intellectual class. You'll see, you have the social science intellectuals Again, like philosophy, social science, um, you know, these are the people majoring in like poli-sci, um, philosophy, uh, comms, all that stuff. Like anything that ends with studies, usually stuff like that, or science, environmental science, all that stuff. But then you also do have intellectuals that are good at engineering and math and like actual things that, you know, are good that can actually help society. Again, it's still like philosophical. It's still like analytical like math and all these things, but they're, they're, they're used. You use math and stuff. You're going to use math more in society than you'll ever, ever need like a philosophy major for or a political scientist, you know, because you need math to like build bridges and stuff and houses and, and go to space and all that stuff. You don't need political scientists for that. So those intellectuals, the actually like smart ones, they can think, they can think for themselves and they can become potentially dangerous. So what you have to do is you have to cater to them and you have to cater to all the intellectuals. You can't leave them out so that you can secure their loyalty. So um, you be, you're basically becoming a monopolist. And the way you do this is by using the education system from kindergarten all the way to the universities. And this is what um, you know a lot of uh, defectors from Soviet countries talk about is that like you know it takes 12 years basically for a generation to become propagandized. Um, and we'll get into that when I do that topic, but K through 12, like you have to get everyone on the, into the education system because that is what creates, um, you know, the generation that will believe in the state, state apparatus. And so education, what you have to do for that is you have to make it compulsory. It has to be like mandatory, um, in order to subject the people to state controlled education for as long as possible, everyone has to be declared, um, equally, I guess, like able to be educated, right? 
And so, um, you know, there's these things that they say, like everyone is a potential Einstein when given the opportunity, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. And this is where you get into like this equity stuff where it's like everyone has the same potential and the same this and we can all do it because that's what keeps the education system going is the idea that like, hey, it could be me. I could make it, you know, but in reality, it's like we're all different, you know, and they don't they don't uh, harness your differences in school. Everything's standardized, right? But the, the idea is that if they make you hope and think that you can make it and that you are somehow like the next thing or whatever, then that's how they keep the education system going because you need the education system then to give you what you think it is going to provide, but it doesn't. Um, so then that in that sense that uh, the education system prov- creates a demand for intellectual services. So... So yeah, that's uh, the education system is a topic on its own. Um, and so like now I want to get into um, the intellectual themselves. If they do feel underappreciated by the state, there's not really much they can do. And so this is kind of what I talked about before. So even if the intellectual feels underappreciated by you, that is like by one particular state administration, they know that help can only come from another state administration. Um but not from an intellectual assault on the institution of the state. So, like, the intellectual will never go on assault, you know, go and attack the institutions. If they have a problem, they'll just go to another institution because they need the institutions. Um, and so that, for that reason, you that's why you have, you know, the overwhelming majority of contemporary intellectuals, including most conservative ones, because, you know, oftentimes we think of the intellectual class, and most of the time they are, don't get me wrong, they're like these liberals and they're Democrats and stuff, but this is why including most conservative or so-called like free market intellectuals, so you see these think tanks, I'm not going to name which ones, but like they're so-called free market or uh, conservative institutions, but they are institutions at the end of the day, and they know that, um, and they, that's why you have these conservative intellectuals that still believe in um, the state, they're still status at the end of the day, whether they're on left or right. Because they know they need the state, and it's in their best interest to keep it going, whether it's, whether they feel underappreciated or not. They need, you know, the state has such a grip on them that they need it. Um, and so, yeah, if you look at the success of the intellectuals, if you're asking yourself, have they done a good job? Have they, you know, done what the state has asked them to? Yeah, overwhelmingly they have. I mean, the vast, vast majority of people, if you ask them, if the state is um, a necessary institution, if the state itself is necessary, they're going to tell you, yeah. You know, the overwhelming majority of state supporters, they're not philosophical status. They're not people that, like, they don't think about stuff like that. They don't have any thought on the matter. Most people don't really think about anything philosophical. They don't really dig deeper. You know, they're working their 9-to-5 job or whatever more these days, um, and they just kind of go home. They might have kids or they might have hobbies. They're usually spending their whole time on social media. And so... What they do is they get their information. They need to like, they know they need to get some information, um, but they get it from like the TV or they get it from these sources. But all the sources are sourced from the intellectual, the intellectual class. So um, most of the support for the state doesn't come from people that are thinking about the state. Is what I'm trying to say. They're not sitting there actually breaking down the, the philosophy of the state, why it exists, asking about the nature of the state. The fact that the state exists itself is enough evidence for them that the state should exist. 
And this is where you get into like the social contract. A lot of people will be like, oh, well, you signed the social contract, remember, you know, or whatever. And it's like, that's a whole topic on its own. Um, but th- that's the term that keeps coming up all the time is like the social contract. So again, people aren't sitting around all day thinking about the state and that's not where the state support comes from. It comes from the intellectual. So the greatest achievement of the statist intellectual is the fact that they have cultivated basically um, the, the masses laziness. They've played off the laziness um, to not to make sure that the subject is never really discussed in a serious manner. So the state is considered an unquestionable part of the social fabric. Like it is just embedded in everything that we do. And in, in my book, the one I talked about, I'll link in the show notes. And I believe in the beginning, I talk about something called the givens. And when you're having discussions with people, especially intellectuals, they throw out these things that I labeled the givens, which are basically, it's like a premise that you have to accept. They don't even ask you to accept it. It's just such a given. That's why it's called given. It's just embedded into the conversation and every given basically just assumes that the state is necessary. You can't even begin to have a conversation with these people if you don't accept that the state is necessary. And this is kind of what Noam Chomsky was saying when he said that the spectrum of accepted political discourse or whatever he said is like within this little spectrum. And like if you, you, you can't go far either too far left or too far right. You have to stay in this middle ground. And that's where it exists. And that's um, where everyone, all the intellectuals like to keep it both parties, everything. It has to stay in this little window. So, the I talked about the intellectuals. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about the um, anti-intellectuals. So the job of the anti-intellectuals, so these are people that are intellectuals, but they understand what the intellectual class is doing, and it's wrong, and the, they're against the state. Their task of the intellectual, anti-intellectual, is to counter the the dogmatic um, slumber of the masses by giving a precise definition of the state. So like actually breaking down the arguments. So like, as I said, the state and the intellectuals don't like to get into serious discussions about the nature of the state, the justifications of it, its legitimacy, and the role of the intellectual anti-intellectual is to have those conversations, to bring those to the for- to the forefront. And that's kind of what we're doing here is discussing these things, which I'll get into here in a minute. So, um, to get into some of the arguments, uh, one of the arguments for the state, and this is like like elementary school level, um, is that some activities of the state are um, needed, like building roads, schools, delivering the mail, putting police on the street. And they say, you know, like imagine if there was no state, then we would have... Um, we wouldn't have these things. Therefore, the state is necessary. So this is like one of the, this is the basic like, well, who will build the roads argument that, you know, libertarians and people laugh at when a status asks this because it's such an easy response. But to them, it's like, oh, a big argument. Like, yeah, well, who's going to build this or who's going to build that? Um, so now we're getting into like a little bit of anarchist thought and anarchism will be its own topic. I'll do another thing on anarchism. I don't really want to do it now, but the thing is, in school, don't don't let them define anarchism as chaos. You know, it's like so typical when people define anarchy as chaos. All it means is, just, is that there's no like some there's no like ruler over you. There's no like established or centralized like authority. Basically, that's what anarchy is. I mean, anarchy is like putting two people in a room together. That's that's anarchy, really. Is there's no like person in charge. You know, like. Um, 
we're having an anarchist conversation right now. You're listening voluntarily to me, and I'm speaking, but I'm not forcing you to speak. So this is anarchy in action right now, you know? Anarchy is just like, it's just no ruler. Now, some people will say they're minarchists, basically, which is, you know, oh, I don't, I understand, you know, government is bad and the state is evil and all this stuff, but we do need some government, so I'm for a little bit of government. But the problem with that, with minarchism, is that you're basically saying, I, I need a little bit of something bad. I just need a little bit of poison, a little bit of something that I know is bad. And it's obviously going to grow because it has grown and it continues to grow. I mean, look at our, from the time of the founding fathers to now, the government is just, when you, it's, it's all or nothing. You know, you can't have a little bit of something that is by its nature is going to grow. And so minarchy, one of the hardest things in politics I, I've discovered is um, when you're moving from minarchy to anarchy, it's just one of the hardest leaps to make. You can make a leap from anywhere on the political spectrum, but for, to go from minarchy to anarchy is very difficult. So I don't think it's easier for people. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you should definitely, it's so easy to do it, just do it. It, it does take a lot to really, um, to make that step. But once you make that step, you really realize it, that it's just the logical conclusion of libertarianism is anarchism. Um, you can't have, like, you, you know, libertarians will know that the state is this thing that, you know, infringes on private property rights and all this stuff. And like I mentioned in the beginning, we'll charge you fees and have these unilateral contracts and not just have unilateral contracts, by the way, but get involved in your own private bilateral contracts like minimum wage laws, for example. So if you want to, um, if you want to hire someone to wash dishes for $10 and someone is voluntarily willing to wash dishes for $10 and you two have an agreement, the state will come in and say, no, you can't do that. You either pay them $15 or they're not working at all. So like they're getting involved in your bilateral contracts. Um, but anyways, I digress. So that was the, that's one of the weaker statist arguments. Now the next, um, you know, kind of when you get to the university level, the argument becomes that you know markets are best at providing many or even most things, but there are goods and uh, the markets can't provide or cannot provide in sufficient quantity or quality, basically. Um, so these so-called public goods are goods that bestow benefits onto people um, beyond those actually having produced or paid for them. So like education and research, um, stuff like that. And so uh, the thing is here is that the, the issue with that is that, um, you know, so the, the argument is that the state is necessary to provide otherwise unproduced or underproduced goods, such as education and research that for some reason the market can't provide. Well, first off, if education was needed, which it is, then um, the market would provide it. I mean, we have private schools, right? But forget private schools. Like, if something is needed, then there will be a market for it. I mean, you look at, like, I mean, cavemen didn't have um, a government, right? But we have we learned, we evolved to learn, you know, we had language and, like, that's what we have today. We didn't need a government for people to, like, have curiosity to learn. That If you provide people with some skill set, education, whether it's to make a fire or some kind of benefit, that's education, um, then there's going to be a market for it. There's going to be demand for that, and therefore the market will provide it. I mean, look at, like, you see those videos in Africa where there's, like, you know, warlords and, um, you know, whatever, and, like, there's kids in classrooms, and there's no government there, but those kids are learning in their classroom. There's, all, there's like, a teacher usually, and, their you know, parents will send their kids there. You don't need government to provide you with that service. The market will provide it for you. Now, again, 
the market isn't going to provide everything, um, you know, and the reason for that is because of, uh, you know, there's always going to be unsatisfied, unsatisfied wants. As long as we, um, you know, as long as we're not in paradise, there's always going to be unsatisfied wants. Um, but the thing is, the, the the argument, just to go back a little bit, is before I jump into the um, the scarcity issue, because that's a whole topic, um, the status arguments can basically be refuted um, by asking, you know, like, if a, just because a monkey can ride bike, it's a bike, it doesn't mean that only monkeys can ride a bike. You know, so just because the government can provide something, it doesn't mean that only the government can provide something. And But the thing is, though, we don't even accept that premise that only the government can do that. So again, it's just like, just because you can do something, it doesn't mean only you can do something. Um, and so, yeah, it, that just doesn't work. The, I don't want to break down all the arguments right now, but it just doesn't, this is the basic one. But to get into the scarcity issue, so there's always going to be unsatisfied wants, like I said, as long as we're not in like some, some paradise or whatever. Um, and the thing is, though, does this, the state doesn't even satisfy all your desires. So this idea that the market, just to go back, it's like the market isn't giving you something and so the state is going to give it to you. The state doesn't, you still have desires and wants in this state of system that we exist in that the state doesn't give to you. So it's it doesn't, this idea that the state's always going to come in and fill in the gap is just not true. Anyways, okay, now I'll go back. So, so yeah, there's always going to be unsatisfied wants. Um, but to bring unproduced goods into existence, scarce resources have to be used, which mean that, um, consequently, um, can no longer be used to produce other things, basically, like desirable things. So you have, so that you have like a finite amount of things. If you use, you know, like whether public schools exist or whether public goods exist next to private ones doesn't really matter. The fact is that, you know, the scarcity remains unchanged. So more public goods can only come at the expense of less private goods. Um, so what needs to be demonstrated is that one good is more important and valuable than another one. And so that's what's called economizing. Yet, you know, one of the question then becomes is, um, can the state help economize scarce resources? Um, and so the state does not and cannot economize because in order to produce anything, the state has to resort to taxation or legislation, which basically demonstrates that its subjects don't want what the state produces, but prefer instead something else more important. So the state doesn't economize. The state can only redistribute. It can, it can produce more of what it wants and less of what the people want. And to recall, like, whatever the state then produces will be produced inefficiently. So I don't know if I said that, but, like, there's nothing that the state can provide you that the market can't do better and at a cheaper price. So just keep that in mind. So the most, the most sophisticated argument, then, of the state, um, it's, it comes from, like, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes. And it's that in the state of nature, before the establishment of the state, there were conflicts, right? And so, you know, everyone claims a right to everything and this will result in war and there's no way out of this predicament um, by means of agreement um, because then who would enforce these agreements, right? So whenever this situation appeared and whenever the situation appears advantageous, one or, most, one or both of the parties would break the agreement, right? That's the idea. 
And so people recognize that the best solution is the establishment of a state, of a third party that's the ultimate judge and enforcer. But if that's correct and agreements require an outside enforcer to make them binding, then a state by agreement can never come into existence because in order to enforce the very agreement that is to result in the formation of the state, another outside enforcer before prior to the state would already have to exist. So, so you see what I'm saying? So like if, uh, if two people are coming together and they have disagreements and they want to create a state, like a third party to legislate between them, then there has to be another party that can make create that agreement. And so you're just going to keep going infinitely. Um, so yeah, you know, so the state itself has come into existence without any outside enforcer. Um, so once a state by agreement is in existence, the resulting social order remains a self-enforcing one, right? That's the, that's the idea, is that if once a state does come into existence, and this is what everyone believes, is that, you know, um, you're, you're free to do what you want. But the thing is, this this state that you agreed to with the other, with your counterpart, to just kind of enforce contracts, which is really the, the, the true, I guess, purpose of the state, is really just to help, not even enforce, I don't even want to use that word, but like help negotiate contracts or like, you know what I mean? Just between two people, but the state itself, um, the, the, the entities themselves should still remain self-enforcing. Like only the idea is that you only need the state when the state is needed, but that's not the case. That's, that's not the case at all. Um, because the state itself is bound by nothing except its own rules. Like I said, in the very beginning, like the constraints that it imposes on itself, so in a weird in a weird way, ironically, like the most ironic thing of all this is that the state itself operates in anarchy because there's no boss that overlooks the state. So you know it's just it's weird how that works, right? So like uh, you know, the state itself is operating in anarchy, but the idea is that the state doesn't just leave you alone. The state doesn't leave you alone to have your own contracts with people, your own justice systems, your own way of doing things. So this Hobbesian argument of that you know the state. Even, even if you accept that this, it's okay for the state to be made, which I explained that you would need another state to help you enforce the creation of the state. But forget that argument. Even if it does exist in the way that it's supposed to exist, according to this theory, it, that's not how it exists today. It, it just it can't, because the state itself is always going to aggress on you. Um, because it, it, there's, it's not bound by anything. You're, you're basically giving it power to tax you, to put you in a jail cell if you don't pay the tax, to create a court system and it's going to charge you fees for it and it's going to be determining the outcome of cases you know that are between you and the state um and so the state itself is just always going to be there so if we accept the hobbesian idea that the enforcement of mutually agreed upon rules does require some independent third party this would actually rule out the establishment of a state um it would constitute a conclusive argument against the institution of a state, you know? So like, so there must also exist, I guess, like an independent third party. There's always going to be, have to be a third independent party to truly get what you want in this theory, but that you're never just going to, you're never going to have that, you know? So, so I guess that is the conclusion there. I don't want to get too much into this, but I hope that made sense. The, the state arguments, um, 
I feel like maybe I could give it one more go around to just kind of say it easier. You kind of just have to think about this stuff. You really, and this is, this is some philosophy that I have to think about because look, government runs education system. So a lot of times people wonder like why they believe in government so much is because they are give they've spent 12 years and more giving you the product, you know? So they're telling you, they've created this idea that you need them, you know, and they've been for 12 years and more, they've been promoting themselves. So that's why it's so hard for people to let go of this idea that they need the state. You know, in terms of who's going to build the roads and all this stuff, and who's going to build everything, it's the same people building them now. You don't need government for it. You don't, government doesn't build anything. You know, there is no such thing as government revenue even. There's, revenue is earned. Government doesn't earn anything. It takes from you, and then it provides you a, a, a shitty service with that money, you know, and then there's nothing you can do about it. You know, you if you have private roads, like, for example, if you're in Walmart and you slip on and there, there's a wet floor in Walmart, and you slip and hit your head, you can sue Walmart. It's a private company, right? You can sue them because they were in charge of that. If you're on a road and you hit a pothole, or if there's rain on it, if it's pouring rain and you sl- if you skid on the road and the highway and hit your car, you can't sue the state for having crappy roads. There's there's no liability there on the state. The state's not the state's not liable for its bad product, you know. Whereas if it was a privatized road. They could have different systems in place to get the water out of the way. They would fix the potholes immediately because if they didn't, then you could use a different road or you would not use their service. And then because the market is so great, they would lose their money. They would lose your business and therefore not profit and therefore go out of business. But unlike private companies, the government is not incentivized to provide you with good customer service or good anything because they're just going to take your money anyways because you're, it's by taxation. That's what they do. So this idea that you need government, you don't. Because everything that is provided already today is mismanaged by government, but the people doing it aren't government. They don't they exist outside of government. They would they'll do the same thing in an anarchist society, in a free market society. They don't need government, you know. But the thing is just to go back, it's these intellectuals that you're paying for. You're subsidizing the intellectuals with your tax dollars. Every time they print more money, and every time they start a new agency with new offices and new jobs, all those jobs are intellectuals, and they're growing, and they're getting money, <clears throat> and you have, and they're taxing you, and they're printing more money to pay for their stuff, and that printing of money is inflation that's stealing your money, and really the middle class is just getting, just eaten, you know, and it's but it's just sad because they keep continuing to believe in the state and in government, um, and it's just like this crazy system where like they've convinced the people and they're just like parasites you know they um they uh they they work you to death you work you you're you're in traffic all day you come home tired and you provide a service to the country to the to your society to your community and then these intellectuals are of no use to anyone they um just have figured out because they've sweet talked their way by using the state apparatus um how to exploit you basically so I'll leave it there. Um, this is just all of this was a very brief introduction to all this stuff, but I'll leave it there. And then um, I want to get into more of the role of the intellectuals and who they are, because we've uh, you know a little bit of um, I went off on a couple tangents that I didn't mean to go off on um, where I talked about the intellectual, but there is a, there's a lot to this stuff, a lot more to this, and so I want to keep talking about this and hopefully answer any questions. 
And so you can check out the show notes. I'll put my the link to my book in there if you want. Um, and so, yeah, so stay tuned and we'll do another episode on a different topic soon. Thanks. <laughs>